Essential data can be found in the most unexpected places, including the wastewater flowing freely through sewers. During the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic, cities began tapping their wastewater to look for evidence of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Now, more than a year into the pandemic, it's clear that sewage surveillance carries several advantages over traditional surveillance. Now is the time for the U.S. to capitalize on this free-flowing resource. By investing in this innovative data source now, government officials, school administrators, and business leaders can advance the technological know-how and the public health predictive capabilities needed in the pandemic era and beyond. That was Aparna Keshavaya, a senior biostatistician at Mathematica, a policy research organization, reading from her first opinion essay, Next Steps for Wastewater Testing to Help End This Pandemic and Prevent the Next One. I'll bring you my conversation with her after a word from our sponsor. The demands of innovation are evolving faster with each new discovery. At Cytiva, we evolve with you, using flexible, modular solutions to shorten the time to the next milestone and to market. Learn more at Cytiva.com slash cell therapy. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash cell therapy. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome, Aparna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, most people don't give a second thought to what happens to their waste and the water that carries it after flushing their toilets. At 32 billion gallons of wastewater a day, that represents a huge resource. What kind of essential data is it carrying? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal scenario, we shouldn't be paying attention to our waste, right? In, in the field of public health, when we do our jobs well, people, people don't really know that things are going smoothly. But wastewater is really kind of this hidden gold mine that's free-flowing under our feet every day. It measures anything that we excrete out of our bodies. So that includes things like personal care products, the drugs that we consume, um, you know, biomarkers of disease, of behaviors. We can measure tobacco use. There's a whole lot of things that our bodies basically signal about ourselves and about our health that can be measured in sewage. I don't think most people would consider wastewater and sludge as a gold mine. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, um, we public health researchers <laughs> definitely get into the muck, um, but it is it is a really valuable resource that's that's really kind of historically been untapped, and it's starting to change in large part t- thanks to this pandemic. So, say this summer as things open up, you're at an outdoor barbecue, and somebody who's in uh, some other field, marketing or something, says, "So, what do you do?" How do you describe it to him? What do I do as yeah. a what do you do as, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I think I would say I'm a public health researcher. Um, you know, there are terms biostatistician, data scientist, um, 
Each of these covers one aspect of what I do, but largely what I do is I look at the strengths of uh, data to answer practical questions to improve health and well-being. As a biostatistician, are you kind of surfing the edge between biology and statistics and epidemiology? And public health policy. I think that's the critical. Absolutely. I come at this kind of from a data perspective, but having worked in, in both clinical research and now in health policy research for the last six years or so, I'm kind of spanning that field of the basic lab bench research and the types of information that policymakers need on a daily basis to be able to act and make decisions that, that keep the public safe. When was the first time you heard about using wastewater testing for public health surveillance? And was your first reaction, yuck? <laughs> so this idea came to me um, in 2016, actually. A, um, one of my colleagues at Mathematica had read about wastewater surveillance. And at the time, there was a lot of um, difficulty addressing the opioid epidemic. So it was pretty much raging around the U.S. Uh, there was a lot of funding flowing down from the federal government to states. And in our work at Mathematica, we do a lot of work with state and local officials. And we kept hearing that they needed better data, um, opioid data, traditional data sources like um, opioid overdoses in hospitals, uh, law enforcement seizures, death records. They, they're terribly biased and they come at a point where it's too late to intervene. So we heard, you know, what, what data exist out there that could be used to address the opioid epidemic. And um, a colleague of mine had read about wastewater surveillance for use of measuring cocaine and other illicit drugs. And he wondered, you know, could, could this be used for opioids? And so over the course of six months, I basically got up to speed on the field, understood kind of what are the challenges for measuring opioids compared to other illicit drugs. And we wrote a white paper saying, you know, this seems like a really promising resource. Yes, there are some technical challenges, but they're not insurmountable. And really, this is something that policymakers need to consider. I have to admit that my kind of geeky um, history with wastewater goes back to when I was a high school biology teacher. And I taught, well, when I was a high school biology and environmental sciences teacher, I used to take students on field trips to the local wastewater treatment plant. They were always grossed out, like completely <laughs> grossed out right at the beginning. But I took them there for two reasons. I wanted them to see in, in action one of ecologist Barry Commoner's Four Laws of Ecology, which uh, was there's no waste in nature and there's no, quote, a way to which things can be thrown. And a sewage treatment plant is a perfect example of that. We'd also come home with really wild samples of microorganisms that they could watch for, you know, days and weeks under the, um, uh, under the microscope. So it's a kind of a Sewage treatment plants are seem to be places of both revulsion and fascination at some time. But um, before we jump into how wastewater testing is being used today, can we step back for a second and talk about where it came from? I, I'm, I'm assuming the testing has been going on in place in sewage treatment plants for a long time. Absolutely. Um, in the U.S., so the Clean Water Act in the 1970s basically mandated that you know, 15 to 16,000 wastewater treatment plants across the country 
test for 90 or so contaminants, things like lead and arsenic that you just don't want in your drinking water. So on a daily basis, they're basically collecting samples and making sure that the um, process of taking them out of the, the wastewater before it's recycled back into the environment works successfully. So wastewater testing for public health kind of builds on this existing infrastructure that exists across the country. Was it something that came about slowly or did somebody have kind of an aha moment that, boy, we could do more with this stuff? Yeah, I think there have been a couple of punctuated aha moments over, you know, the last hundred years. And for whatever reason, sometimes they translated and sometimes they didn't. So the earliest paper I could find actually was way back in the 1930s when a group of researchers in Yale actually said, you know, referencing our last paper, um, poliomyelitis virus can actually be isolated from stool samples. And if you kind of extrapolate that further, you would think then that it could be measured in the sewage. And they said, you know, this paper is confirming that you can actually measure poliovirus in urban sewage and that maybe it could be used as an epidemiologic tool to measure population levels of disease. And, and then, I, you know, it's really kind of disappeared. <laughs> so I didn't see a lot of papers, and I actually just came across that old paper very recently. My knowledge of the field of wastewater surveillance really went only back about two decades, I think, is when the bulk of research has been done. Um, it started with drug use. Um, like I said, illicit drugs, cocaine, methamphetamines were, were major targets. And then things like personal care products and over-the-counter medications was also a big target. Um, in the early 2000s. I had hoped, as I, I think I told you, I had hoped to have Christian Doughton on the podcast, who is one of the probably modern founding fathers, but he's recently retired from the EPA and said he's, quote, trying to retire. So he, he begged off on being, um, on being here. But he, he mentioned for a first opinion that he wrote back in January that the idea came to him from thinking about what he was calling um, kind of novel pollutants like antidepressants and statins and things that were showing up in the water system could be detected first in wastewater. That's right. Yeah. So my guess is that, you know, we know that like fish can change genders because of the drugs that are in water that, that we excrete. Um, so I would... I would surmise that he started to see these kind of effects on, on animals, on the environment, and wondered, you know, okay, so we have these chemicals that are being measured that serve as kind of a, a marker of human behavior. Could this be used for public health? And so in the early 2000s, my understanding is that Christian Dotton was one of the first to propose measuring drug use, population-level drug use, using wastewater testing. And that idea then really kind of took off in Europe in a way that it didn't in the U.S. Um, I believe the Office of National Drug Control Policy did conduct one of the earliest pilot studies in the, earliest, in, in the early 2000s across the U.S. Um, and that, that pilot study showed the success of wastewater testing to measure drug use, but there was stigma and some communities you know, did, they didn't want to look bad compared to their neighbors. And that's really a problem with this. When you just are monitoring one or two communities and not everybody, you're shining a spotlight in a way that's uncomfortable, I think, for city officials. 
I never would have thought of that, um, that there could be stigma associated with this kind of generalized testing. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, some, some people think, well, you can't identify individuals with, with the data, which is true. It is, it is a non-intrusive privacy preserving strategy, but that doesn't mean that there aren't sensitivities around measuring things like drug use and, and other kind of behaviors. So has that changed then with, um, with this pandemic we're in, where people I think would be hoping that they could actually measure things? Yeah, I mean, this sewage surveillance took off with this pandemic. It addresses some serious testing gaps that existed early on. So we had, you know, two or three percent of the population maybe was being tested on a regular basis um, or even just once because there were test kit shortages, um, a variety of reasons for why clinical testing didn't cut it. And so wastewater surveillance then suddenly became this option because 80% of the U.S. is connected to a sewer system. So with a single test, you're able to capture, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, even a million people in a large city versus, you know, one person with an infection. It's been used for some fairly what seem like awfully local um Surveillance, also college colleges or college dormitories, does that work when you get down to kind of that uh, granular level? Yeah, that's the power of this data sources. You can use it for mass kind of population monitoring, but you can really get down to a building level, you know, a prison, a long-term care facility, a college dormitory. It depends a little bit on how the sewer is set up. You know, you have to kind of sample from a single manhole upstream of a centralized treatment plant. And so that manhole might cover one building, it might cover two buildings. You know, just it, that varies across the U.S. in terms of, of the design of our infrastructure. But absolutely, it's it's been very successful when used on a local level to isolate kind of infections in these in these kind of transmission nodes, these dense living areas where one case can really rapidly turn into, you know, three, five, 50 cases if it goes unchecked. So does that granularity kind of get uh, defeat the the idea that it's a private sampling system? I mean, it wouldn't be cost effective. You know, you you couldn't really isolate a household, right? The, our sewers aren't set up that way. There's, I don't, I don't believe that there are manholes that isolate. You know, maybe a mansion <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> but um, and I and I have been asked if if you know by law enforcement if you could kind of surveil a perp <laughs> that they were interested in. But in truth, the the use of this tool is is really to capture larger segments of the population. That's where it thrives. That's where it's cost effective. That's where, you know, you can spend minimal resources for maximal effect. Is it a really expensive thing to do? It's not comparatively. I mean, when we're talking about clinical testing, um, it's, it is essentially using the same type of clinical test for an individual um, as you would on wastewater. So that test ranges anywhere from $300, $350 for a test to up to $1,200 on the upper end. Um, which is a, a very wide range right now. Um, the testing market for wastewater testing is unstable. There are not a lot of labs across the country that have the assays and the testing panels in place for health markers. You know, I mentioned that the EPA mandates testing of 90 plus contaminants, but there are no mandates in place for public health biomarkers. So often this work kind of originated in academic labs and then through technology transfer grants, through um, 
just local need. It's kind of made its way into a few commercial labs, but that's, that's a process that still needs to be worked out. And that's resulted in a lot of kind of instability in the marketplace. Testing for uh, lead and things is, you, you mentioned it was, it's probably mandated that everybody needs to do the same sort of thing. This kind of surveillance seems to be a patchwork. Would that be a way to describe it? That historically has been true. I think it can get better going into the future. So even with this pandemic right now, we we know SARS-CoV-2 was responsible. And so we then developed, the labs developed the assays specific to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, those segments of RNA that uniquely identify this virus and don't confound other viruses in the measurement. But when you think about wanting to provide an early warning for the next epidemic threat, you don't know what you're looking for, right? So how do you implement surveillance in a way that allows you to catch something you don't know early on? And Christian Dotton has actually proposed and others have proposed thinking about general markers of health, right? So biomarkers that might just signal infection in the body, inflammation in the body, cytokines, other types of measures where Sure, we have people that have chronic diseases. Those fluctuate a little bit over time. But you can kind of get a fairly solid baseline measure of disease in a population. And when you start to see that uptick, you don't need to know what it is to know that there's a problem. And then you can go in and you can do some non-targeted testing and look at kind of the signatures of what's in the wastewater to try and figure out, is this a bacteria? Is it a virus? Is it something else? Interesting. So it's a pathogen agnostic approach that's looking at the presence of some disease. That's right. I mean, that's it, it hasn't been done before, but I think that would be the future of using this for broad public health surveillance. Even if you don't measure biomarkers from the body, you could also think about measuring use of over-the-counter medications, right? So if people start um, going to the drugstore for, for things that symptoms that they're experiencing, you know, you might think you're alone when your neighbor has those same symptoms and is purchasing the same types of drugs for those symptoms as well. So on a population scale, if you start to see increases in the use of certain medications and say your flu surveillance is not detecting that same sort of increase, that might tell you that there's some, some new things circulating that you're not aware of. With the, so there's, I, I read this somewhere, there's 800,000 miles of public sewers in the U.S., which is 150 times back and across the U.S., and then another 500,000 miles of private lines. That's a lot of um, infrastructure. Is What's it going to take, like across the country, to put that to use for public health surveillance and have the U.S. really kind of come into the mainstream with this? Yeah, it's a challenge. So there, we have sampling plants and treatment plants set up across the U.S., so that's half the battle. 80% of the population is connected. But first of all, there is 20% that's not, so you're not getting information on those people that are on septic systems. And what does that mean? It's you know Something we haven't looked at is what are the demographic features of people who are sewered and who aren't sewered? Sometimes people who aren't sewered can be poorer people who 
you know, don't have um, the infrastructure in place and, and don't have the means to be connected, sometimes they can be the wealthiest individuals who are just on their own septic system out in the middle of nowhere. So it's, it's not necessarily one or the other. It, it varies across the country. But understanding that at a local level of what type of data you're getting and who you're getting that from is one. The other thing is that this type of surveillance is easier in some places than others. So the central treatment plant captures kind of a very large swath of the population, often in an entire county. But if you want more fine information on specific neighborhoods, you need to go upstream. So it's easier in some places than others. Um, it is not cost effective to do, you know, sampling in every single upstream base subbasin. So that's where more thinking is needed around how do we catch something early by doing strategic surveillance in the right places for different types of threats. So you mentioned the difference maybe with people who are unsewered or not connected to sewer systems. Even focusing on those that are, could this kind of approach help inform the ongoing discussion about health disparities uh, from people in impoverished communities? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that we have data on those communities that, you know, impoverished communities are more con are connected to sewer systems in certain areas, we absolutely can look at population biomarkers. We can measure chronic disease. We can measure, um, you know, certain illicit drugs and, and opioids and problems um, that we know exist in some of these communities. One of the strengths of wastewater testing during this pandemic is that it doesn't require you to show up to a testing site, to a hospital to get tested, right? It, you are getting data from someone, whether or not they have the means or the will to show up to get tested. And so similarly, with people who may not have health insurance, with people who, you know, have a mistrust of the medical system for, for very real reasons historically, Wastewater can still give you information on their health and, and their needs um, in a way that some of our traditional data collection methods don't. Well, it's so interesting. It, truly back to the goldmine idea that you mentioned um, early on. What's next for wastewater testing systems once we theoretically or ideally have COVID-19 under control? Well, even before we get there, so we have right now, I think 50 state, all 50 states are surveilling their wastewater in some shape or form. Um, hundreds of communities across the U.S. have surveillance in place. But what we're hearing is that public health officials don't know how to act on this data. So they have huh. these measures. They have, you know, genome um, viral copies per liter and concentrations of, of the virus in the wastewater. But what does that mean for them? So there's a huge translational component that still needs to be done. You know, how much of an increase is worrisome versus uh, just kind of day-to-day -day fluctuation. So a kind of a signal to noise type of analysis is needed. Um, how can you bring together multiple types of information, the clinical testing, plus wastewater surveillance, plus vaccination rates, plus, you know, things like um, online Facebook symptom surveys. You know, each of these give you a partial picture of what's happening but when you bring them together, they can kind of help fill the holes in any one data source. So that's the type of um, translational work that, that we're really interested in and, and that we are in the process of kind of doing on a larger scale. It sounds like there's a fairly vibrant community of people doing this. 
There really aren't. Um, this is something I've kind of called for since I entered this field of, of wastewater surveillance um, five years ago is that that work to take this out of the realm of kind of academic exercise into an operational policy tool. So a lot of the wastewater work that that occurred historically ended in a research paper in a specialist journal and nobody knew about it. Mm. And we convened a symposium in 2017 that brought together federal government, state government, local government officials working on the opioid epidemic. We brought together utilities, you know, water representatives, and we brought together the academic experts in this methodology to just talk to each other in a room, you know, and figure out what are the needs and can this method meet those needs. And in doing so, we raised awareness and even heard that you know, some utilities recognized their power in being able to influence public health. And that actually prepared them for wastewater surveillance during this pandemic, knowing that they had a role with the opioid epidemic. You know, this conversation makes me think that when I or listeners or anybody for that matter, go to the bathroom, we should each of us be a little bit proud that we're actually contributing to a public health early warning system. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that would be great. Um, you know, it's there. There are. It's funny when when there's like tourism in an area. You know, you might be contributing to a different community than where you live. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this is um, this is very much yeah. a, a very promising uh, data collection method, and and it's one that doesn't require any additional work. It is literally an add-on test. <laughs> you know, and it, and it capitalizes on. Uh, flows, activities, and processes that are already in place. Well, Aparna, thank you for the work you're doing and for taking the time to talk with me and listeners and take us into the, for most of us, weird but important world of wastewater testing and wastewater epidemiology. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. Do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate you reviewing or rating the podcast on whichever platform you use to get it. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.